Turn there, please, though, to start off. We will be journeying through the scriptures today, a little bit different than we normally do. Be a lot of references this morning. If you have our church app, all of those are plugged in, those references beforehand, and uh, may allow you to follow along more quickly, but in case you miss a verse or are moving too quickly for you, you can use that to study again on your own time to look it up. You can also go to our website, and later this week when the message goes up there, all the verses are listed there as well, so you can do your own study and check me out. So, Revelation 4, I want to read verses 1 through 2, because that's where we've been at. In Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, after this, this is after the things of chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, after the things concerning the church, John says, I looked and behold, a door was opened, as we looked at last week, was standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, the voice of Jesus said, come up here. And I will show you things which must be, which is necessary to happen hereafter, after the things of the church. And immediately, quicker than shortly, immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. John here in verses one and two of Revelation chapter four is experiencing what will happen to the church after the end of the things concerning the church, the rapture. He is having a rapture experience here in a sense. And we talked about that event last week. What is the rapture? Well, in that event, Jesus descends to the clouds and he shouts, just like he did with John here, come up here. Those who are dead believers will be resurrected first, and then living believers are caught up or raptured. That's the Latin word for caught up. If you had a Latin Bible, you would see the word rapture there. Living believers are caught up to the clouds, and they are transformed into their new bodies along the way. And then Jesus takes all believers and to heaven to be with him forever. That is the event of the rapture. Now, while the only why it's important uh, that we need to know is that Jesus promised us he would do this in John 14, 1 through 3, when he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it was not true, I wouldn't have told you. I go away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away to prepare a place for you, I will take you to be where I am, that you may be with me. That's the whole concept, this promise that Jesus said that he gave, that he would come to get us to take us to be where he is in heaven, the place where he has built a home for us. If that's the only why we had for it to be important, that's plenty important, but the Bible gives us more whys. And so our goal this morning is to answer two very practical questions concerning why the rapture is important. First off, why does the church have to end? If the rapture signifies the end of the church age or the end of God's work through the church, why does the time of the church have to end? That's the first question we're going to look at. The second question is, well, why is it important that we look for Jesus' return? Why is that necessary to our Christian lives? So we'll try to answer those two questions to the best of our ability this morning. So the first question, why must the time of the church end? We're going to start off in Hebrews chapter 11, and I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to go on a journey, so hope your fingers are ready. Hebrews 1, start there. Why must the time of the church end? Well, the reason is, is because God has two distinct plans that are mutually exclusive. Two distinct plans that are mutually exclusive. Now, why would we think God had two distinct plans that are mutually exclusive? Because God speaks in different ways during different time periods. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It says here in Hebrews 1, verse 1, 
God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and by whom also he made the worlds. Here we see something very important. The main sentence here says, God has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, by whom he also made the worlds. That is the main sentence here. Everything else is kind of an aside. It's giving us more information. So in verse 1 here, as it says, God has spoken in these last days to us by his Son, by whom he made the worlds. Why is that crucial that now he explains why he has spoken to us? Well, because at sundry times and in diverse manners, God spoke in time past unto the fathers, not through his Son, but through the prophets. So the idea here is that God makes it clear that he has spoken in different ways and through different people at sundry times. Now, what does that phrase at sundry times means? It means by many time periods. Now, if God spoke during many time periods, that makes no sense if all time periods are part of the same exact plan that God has. If God's plan is just one running plan that has a start in creation and ends with eternity, then why would he say that he spoke in many different times, different ways through different people by many time periods? That doesn't make any sense. We get more information on this in verse 2. He has in these last days spoken unto us. The word last here means last in a series of succession. So these many time periods shows that the last time period or the last group that God's going to, that has a plan for, that he's speaking to is this one, the one he sent Jesus to speak to, all right? The last thought we have here is by whom he also made the worlds. We can look at that and think, oh, he's the heir of all things and he's also the creator of all things. The problem is that's not what the word worlds means here. The word worlds here means literally periods of time or different ages. In other words, Jesus has had a part to play in these different ages, but God was speaking directly through him in the last age, the last period of time. So what this is telling us in verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 1 here is that God spoke in different ways through different people during different time periods because God has different plans for different people in different time periods. Everyone follow me because that sounded confusing when I said it. That's the idea here. So God's plan for the church must come to an end because he still has an unfinished plan for a different people, the nation of Israel. So when we look here and say, well, why does the time of the church have to end? Because God's plan for the church and God's plan for Israel are distinct. And God isn't done with Israel, so That means we have to come to an end so we can begin working on that plan again. Look at Romans chapter 11 with me. It shows us here that God's plan for the church and Israel are distinct plans. Now, Paul in the book of Romans is establishing the doctrine of salvation. He spends eight chapters giving us the theology of justification, of sin, justification, sanctification, and then glorification. But then in in chapter 9, he begins to talk about, well, how does this work with the fact that God made promises to Israel? How does that work with us if we're not Israel and we're something different, this new entity, the church? So in chapter 11, he's concluding his argument, and he says this, I say then, in Romans 11, verse 1, I say then, 
Has God cast away his people? Has God rejected, cast off, thrown away his people, Israel? And what does he say? What's the answer to that question? God forbid, which literally means perish the thought. Don't ever think that. Don't ever think that, that God has cast away his people. Regrettably, there are those within the church who say that God has, that the church is now Israel, and they ignore Paul's inspired warning here, don't ever think that, okay? Has God cast away his people? No. For uh, God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people which he foreknew. Can it get any clearer than that? Cannot. God is not done with Israel. Look at verse 11. He, he spends the next, all the way down to verse 10, explaining that God isn't done with, with Israel. But then he asks another question in verse 11. Well, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? In other words, okay, so they rejected their Messiah. They, they, they aren't where they're supposed to be, but did that happen just so they could fall on their face and God be done with them? And what's his answer again? God forbid. Is it so that he could just transfer all those promises to us that were made to Israel? His answer is, do not ever think that thought. But rather, through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. God's not done. He still wants to draw them to himself. So Israel did reject their Messiah, but their failure isn't irreparable. God is, in fact, using this new entity called the church to make them jealous of of the fact that God is working in us now and he's not working in them in the same way. So, What does Paul conclude? He goes on to explain. And as he goes on to explain, he says, don't get prideful. Don't think you're hot stuff because God cut them off so that he could work in you because the reality is is God's gonna bring them back in. And so in verses 25 through 27, he comes to his conclusion. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in, until something is complete. And so all Israel future, after that thing is complete, the time of the church, so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, shall future, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins." God will finish his plan with Israel. The time in between their failure in rejecting their Messiah and their revival is what we call the time of the church, the age of the church. So, two distinct plans for two distinct groups which will be fulfilled at two distinct times. So what are those two plans and how do they differ? Well, what does the scripture teach us about God's plan for Israel? Well, God's plans for Israel, they revolve around specific promises God made to them and no one else. Promises he made to the nation of Israel and no one else. We call those plans or those promises covenants. And I'm gonna just share three of them with you. So go all the way back to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, we'll look at the first covenant that God makes with the nation of Israel. And he makes it with them via their forefather, Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham here, we'll read through some verses and then I'll comment on them, but Genesis 15, God's covenant with Abraham here is concerning a promised piece of property, okay? A promised piece of property. It is a promise made to Abraham and his descendants and no one else, all right? Genesis 15, beginning in verse 7. 
In Genesis 15, 7, and he, the Lord, said unto him, Abraham, I am the Lord that brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. And he, Abraham, said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and he divided them in, in the midst. He cut them in half. He killed them and then cut the animals in half, and then laid each piece one against another. In other words, half of the piece over here, half of the piece over here. Then the next animal, half of the piece over there. So basically, it was a line, a path you could walk through between the animal parts, okay? And it says, but the birds, he didn't do that. He just put one bird on one side, one bird on the other side. Verse 11, and when the fowls came down, the the carrion birds came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he, the Lord, said unto Abram through this dream, know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years, referring to Egypt. And also that nation whom they serve will I judge, Egypt. And afterward shall they, his descendants, come out with great substance. And you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. You won't see this Egyptian enslavement, Abraham. But in the fourth generation, they, your descendants, shall come back here again to this land. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete or full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a, number one, a smoking furnace, and then number two, a burning lamp passed between the animals, walked in the middle of those animal parts. And in the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto your seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, in verses 6 and verse 18, God makes it very clear that he's giving a specific plot of land, a piece of property to Abraham and his descendants. When Abraham asked in verse 7 how he knows God means what he's saying, how he means business, God replies by performing a covenant ritual. Now, back then, this is called a blood covenant. And when you would make a blood covenant, you would sacrifice an animal, and you would take that animal and divide it in in half. And you would put one part over here and one part over there. And then you would walk together through the animal, the animal parts, and you would basically make your promises right there in the middle of those animal parts. And the idea is, you cannot go back on your promise unless you can put the animal back together. Now, is that going to happen? Obviously not. You're not going to ever be able to put the animal back together again. It's dead. So the idea is it's a lasting covenant. It is something you mean business when you're going to do this. And so God is making this covenant here, this ritual, going through it with Abram. However, who walks through the animals? Does Abraham walk through the animals? He does not. He sees two things walk through the animals. He sees, number one, a smoking furnace, so like a torch, and then a burning lamp. Two things go through. There is a deal being made, but it is not God making a deal with Abraham where Abraham keeps his part and God keeps his part. No, no, no. This is a deal God makes with himself. Now, can God fail? Can God fail? Okay, thank you. I was like, man, nobody thinks God can. God, oh, wow. God can't fail. So these promises of this covenant, they're not dependent upon Israel's faithfulness. 
It doesn't matter that Israel wasn't faithful. They are dependent upon God's faithfulness. And since God cannot be unfaithful, the covenant remains in place today. That land does not belong to the church or any other group of people besides the nation of Israel. God confirms this again in Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your seed after you. And I will give unto you and to your seed after you the land wherein you are a stranger. And what is that land? All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Again, is that confusing? (laughs) That is very clear. This land belongs to them. Now, Israel has never experienced the full promise of God regarding this stretch of land from the river of Egypt, the Nile, all the way to the river Euphrates. They have never experienced that. Now again, does God keep his promises? He does. So he must not be, he cannot be finished with Israel yet. He cannot be done with his plan for them yet because this promise has never been fulfilled and it's not dependent upon their faithfulness. We can't say, yeah, well, God didn't do it because, well, they failed in their part and now we're Israel. No, <laughs> that is a mistake. Let's look at the next covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. God's covenant with Israel is not yet complete. It is not fulfilled. It is unfinished. We see in this next covenant. The first one was concerning a promised piece of property, the land of Israel. The second one is concerning a promised permanent king. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the context is this. David wants to build God a temple, a permanent house. He said, I live in a palace and the Lord lives in a tent the tabernacle. He says, I want to build him a permanent house, a a temple. And so he tells the prophet, he says, I want to do this. And the prophet says, David, do all that's in your heart. What a great idea. And then as the prophet's leaving, the Lord says, David can't build me a house. He's a, he's a man of bloodshed, a man of war. I can't, he can't do this. He said, he said, but tell him this, I'll build him a permanent house. And then this covenant comes into being. Second Samuel seven, beginning in verse 12. And when your days be fulfilled, David, when when you shall sleep with your fathers, after your debt, I will set up your seed after you, which shall proceed out of your bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. That's Solomon, David's son, who did this. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Not his personal kingdom. He won't be an eternal king, but the throne of his kingdom forever. His descendants, that'll be a permanent throne is going to come from that. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But even though I will discipline him and his descendants, he says, my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established before you forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Again, that's not confusing. That's not temporary. This is a permanent thing that God will do. He is promising a permanent kingdom, a permanent king. Now, while Solomon built the temple and David's line continued on the throne for many generations, their sin caused God to discipline them and to remove them from the throne. 
but faithful to his promise. God did not turn to some other dynastic line. He didn't turn to some other king. David's line continued all the way up to Messiah's birth. And Jesus offered the kingdom to the nation of Israel. He offered that permanent kingdom. But what did Israel do? They rejected it. But again, this is not a promise or a covenant that is based upon Israel's faithfulness. God says he will discipline them, but he will not cast them off. And so, this is an unfulfilled promise. God has not fulfilled the end of this promise that he made to David yet and the nation of Israel yet. God keeps his promises, right? And thus, that means he must not be finished with this in Israel yet. He must set up an eternal kingdom with the son of David as its king at some point in the future for this to be true. So the first covenant was a a promised piece of property. The second covenant was a promised permanent king. And then the last covenant that I'm going to share with you today that God made with Israel was concerning a promised perpetual restoration. Look at Ezekiel 16 with me. Ezekiel 16. A promised perpetual restoration. Israel has experienced many restorations to their land and to the Lord in their history, but they have never been perpetual. They've always fallen away again. God promises in Ezekiel 16 that they will have a perpetual restoration, a restoration that never needs to be restored again, where they will never, ever fall away from the Lord again, never, ever disobey the Lord again. But the restoration that's there will have perpetual consequences and and ramifications all throughout the rest of their days. Now, Ezekiel 16 is a long chapter. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But I do want to read a few verses to you to to kind of share this covenant with you. Beginning in verse 3, Ezekiel's preaching a sermon that God tells him to preach and say, thus says the Lord God unto Jerusalem, your birth, Israel, your birth and your nativity is in the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, your mother was a Hittite. And as for your nativity, your day of birth and the day that you were born, your navel was not cut, neither were you washed in water to supple you. You were not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pitied you to do any of these things unto you, to have compassion upon you, But you were cast out, thrown away into the open field to the loathing of your person in the day that you were born. But when I passed by you and I saw you polluted, just dying in your own blood, I said unto you when you were in your blood, live. I said unto you when you were in your blood, yes, live. And I have caused you to multiply as the bud of the field. You have increased and you've waxed great. You are come to excellent ornaments. Your breasts are fashioned. Your hair is grown, whereas you were naked and bare. Now when I passed by you and looked upon you, behold, your time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over you and I covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore unto you and I entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord God, and you became mine. Here the Lord says that he chose Israel as his bride and he married them. He entered into a covenant with them and they became his people. But after God cleaned them up and entered into this relationship, this exclusive relationship with them, the problem was is that Israel wasn't faithful. Look at verse 15. But you did trust in your own beauty and you played the harlot because of your fame and you poured out your fornications, your unfaithfulness, your immoralities on everyone that passed by, his it was. God was faithful to them, but they were unfaithful to him. Look at verses 35 through 39. 
Wherefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your filthiness was poured out and your nakedness discovered through your whoredoms with your lovers and with all the idols of your abominations and by the blood of your children, they had sacrificed these children to these idols who you gave to them. Behold, therefore, I will gather all your lovers with whom you have taken pleasure and all those you have loved with all them you have hated. I will even gather them round about against you and will discover your nakedness unto them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women that break wedlock and shed blood are judged. And I will give you blood and fury and jealousy. And I will also give you into their hand and they shall throw down your eminent place. You had this fame and this glory and this beauty and this wealth. And I will throw it down and I will break down your high places. They shall strip you also of your clothes. They shall take your fair jewels and they'll leave you naked and bare just like when I first found you. God judged Israel for their unfaithfulness, took them out of the promised land, brought them into Babylon. Verse 60 through 63. Despite all of that, look at what the Lord says here. Nevertheless, even though you've been unfaithful so much repeatedly over and over again that I had to bring you out of the land, nevertheless, I won't forget my covenant with you. I won't forget my promise to you. I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. I'll remember the promise I made to Abraham. I'll remember the promise I made to David. And I will establish a new thing with you, an everlasting covenant. I'm making a new promise to you now. I'll remember the old promise, but I make a new one to you. That I will do something in the future that lasts forever. For then shall you remember your ways and be ashamed when you shall receive your sisters, your elder and your younger, and I will give them unto you for daughters, but not by your covenant. In other words, I have plans for different people and they're gonna bless you. They're gonna be serving you during the millennium. He says, you know, but that's a different deal I've got with them. But I will establish my covenant with you then and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I am pacified towards you for all that you have done, says the Lord God. He says, I will restore you in such a way that you'll be confused when you think of how you left me back then, of how you were unfaithful and served idols and did all these things. You'll be like, why would we do that? Israel will be restored in such a way that they'll never be unfaithful to God again. Now, did that happen when they were restored from Babylon back to the promised land? No, no. That did not happen when Israel returned from Babylon. They were repeatedly unfaithful after that, and it culminated in the rejection of their own Messiah. That means that God has also not fulfilled the end of this promise to the nation yet. And does God keep his promises? Yes. And because three of you think so. Because God keeps his promises, Israel will return to the Lord with their whole heart at some point in the future and will never rebel against him again. So, In conclusion, why must the time of the church end? Because God has different plans, and God is not done with his plan for Israel. And God speaks at different times through different people with different plans. So the plans don't run concurrent. God is not done with the land of Israel. He's not done with the kingly line of Israel, and he's not done with the nation of Israel. All three of those covenants remain in place with promises that still must be fulfilled. Now, We studied the fulfillment of those three promises 
when we covered the prophecy of the 70 weeks in Daniel 9, verses 20 through 27. I'm not going to read it again. I'm not going to go back there again. If you want to study that, I encourage you. It's about three or four messages I did on Daniel 9, when we went through the book of Daniel, Daniel 9, 20 through 27, and you can remind yourself of that by listening to those again. But what we learned as we studied through that is of that 490-year prophecy, seven years remain unfulfilled. And that seven-year period, which is known as the Great Tribulation, that is when God will complete these three covenants that he has made with the nation of Israel. The Lord will then fulfill all those promises to Israel. He will bring them back into their land in fullness. He will give them their king, the Messiah, and they will be returned to him in such a way that they will never fall away from him again. So that's God's plan for the nation of Israel. It's unfinished. And therefore, that means the time of the church has to come to an end so God can finish his plan for Israel. Now, what do the scriptures teach about God's plan for the church then? Well, God's plan for the church also revolves around promises. It revolves around a covenant. Now, Jesus set up this covenant at the end of his earthly ministry. During the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, if a Jewish man wanted to marry a woman, he would have a marriage contract drawn up in which he would list all of the things he had to offer the woman, all the benefits he was going to give to this woman. And he would then take that contract and he would present it to her parents. Now, if the parents agreed and said, yes, this is a good thing for my daughter, then they would invite their daughter into the meeting. The man who was proposing would offer the woman that he wants to marry, a glass of wine. He would drink from it and he'd offer it to her. She did not have to drink it. She could have said, no, dad, he's only got two teeth. I'm not good with this. Or, or I don't like him. He's got a bad reputation. You know, I don't think this is, I don't want to marry him. She could do that. But if she drank that cup, that was her way of saying she accepted the proposal for marriage. Now, once that was settled, the groom would then leave that meeting to prepare a home for his new bride. Because there was a contract, they would legally be in a relationship, required to stay faithful to one another, even though they weren't together. They would not be permitted to consummate the marriage until about a year later when he was done preparing a place for her. Now, the groom, when he was done preparing a place for her, would return to come get her, usually at night. He would come with his friends and there would be lots of carousing and trumpets and announcements and everything as he's coming to notify that he's coming. He would be called the thief in the night. He would essentially break into the home to take his bride. And so he would come in, mom and dad would be there, and then the girl who would know the time is coming soon would be there with her bridesmaids. And they would all have her ready for the wedding ceremony. And so he would come and he would get her, and then he would take her away. And the reason mom and dad were there to supervise the theft is because of the whole Jacob Laban thing with getting Leah instead of Rachel. I wanted to make sure that never happened again. I'm not lying. That's, how, that's actually how it, why it is that way. But then he would come and he would take her to the wedding ceremony. Now, the wedding ceremony would begin with two blessings, but the first was given when the officiant for the wedding would present the bride and the groom with that same cup filled with wine again. And the groom and the bride would drink from the same glass just as they did at their engagement, symbolizing that they'd been faithful while they were separated, that while he was preparing a place, they were faithful, and that now everything they committed to each other on that day had come to pass. And then they would share life together from that moment forward. Now, when we keep this whole 
concept of the engagement and Jewish marriage in mind, Jesus' words at the Last Supper take on new life, don't they? Turn to Matthew 26 with me. Matthew 26. When Jesus was celebrating this Passover with his disciples before he died, he said unto them that he was establishing a new covenant, a new testament in his blood. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. But then when he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, he said to them, drink you all of it. Now the disciples could have said, no, we're not interested. (laughs) No, we don't know about this. But Jesus explains what he's offering what he's bringing to the relationship. For this is my blood of the New Testament, the new covenant, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I am pledging that I will be faithful to you and prepare a place for you. What I'm bringing to the relationship is absolute and complete forgiveness of sins, a new deal, a better deal than the old covenant. And if you would drink this and accept that, then my promise is I'll be faithful to you. I won't drink it again until I drink it with you again in my kingdom. And of course, what's being unspoken there is at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Testament is just another word for covenant. This is the new covenant that Jesus sets up. It's a new covenant with a new entity, the church. The church is different than Israel. We are made up of not Israelis, but all kind of people. We're not one nation, we're from all nations. And therefore, the church is not tied to any specific piece of land, to any specific king, and to any specific nation like Israel is. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, after this all begins and the church is about to be born on the day of Pentecost, right before then, before Jesus ascends to heaven, the disciples asked him and said, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Are you going to keep your promises to the nation of Israel? Are you going to finish what you promised? These covenants. And what does the Lord say? It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. That is, this is not for you. The times and the season when God's going to do that for Israel, that's not what you're about. What are you about? But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost parts of the earth." The church's job isn't about restoring a kingdom or a land or a nation. It it is about being the bride of Christ and getting other people to be a part of the bride of Christ. That's our job, the Great Commission. Go you into all the world and what? Make disciples of all flesh. And we do that by going, by teaching them the word of God, by baptizing. That's how we make disciples. That's our focus. That's our covenant. Look at 2 Corinthians 11. Paul understood this. When the Corinthians were beginning to listen to false teachers, they were disparaging Paul, critiquing him, telling the Corinthians not to listen to Paul. And Paul writes to them, and he's explaining why they should listen to him and not listen to these false teachers. He explains, I'm not just doing this because I'm jealous because I want your attention on me and not on other people. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. He says to them, 
For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. My jealousy is not for me. He says, For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. My heart and my, my desire, my reason I'm asking you to listen to me and to stop listening to these false teachers is because you've been promised to Christ. You've not been promised to other things. And my desire is to present you as a faithful spouse, as a faithful bride, one who has remained faithful while the groom's been away preparing a place, one, a bride that has not gotten distracted, that's not gotten involved in other relationships, that's not given her heart to other things. Which brings us to why the rapture is so important. Look at verses three and four. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that comes preaches another Jesus whom you have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, another mindset or attitude whom you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you might well bear with him. If somebody came and, and presented to you something else besides Jesus, you'd listen. Why? Because you're not thinking about the fact that your groom is coming back for you and that you're supposed to be faithful until he does. You're supposed to be single-minded on what the focus is. If the return of Christ isn't important to us, if we're not looking for our groom to come back and get us, if it's not something we're watching for and looking forward to, there are practical, everyday negative effects of that. The enemy can beguile us off the simple path of just following Jesus. Conversely, if the return of Christ is important to us, if it is something we're watching for and looking forward to, there are awesome, everyday, practical benefits. Which brings us to our second question, which is much shorter than the first one, or the answer at least. Which is, why must we look forward to Jesus' return? The, the, the time of the church has to end because God's not done with another group. He's done, he needs to finish up with Israel. So our time needs to come to an end. But why do we need to look forward to Christ's return? So that while we're still in this time that is our time, we can do something. Look at Titus 2 with me. Titus chapter 2. I'm going to go through Titus 2, 11 through 13, and then 1 John 2, 28 through 33, and that will be kind of our closing. So we're going to go a little late today, but I think it's important. Titus 2, 11 through 13. Paul is instructing Titus about how to be a good pastor. And he says in chapter two, he says, listen, you got all sorts of different people, different age groups, different genders in your church. So the older guys tell them this is what they need to do. The older ladies tell them what this is what they need to do. The younger guys tell them this is what they need to do. The younger ladies tell them this is what they need to do. This is how you disciple them and how you get your people discipling everyone else. That's what you focus on. And why do we need to focus on certain things? Why are we focusing on having our lives match up to these things? Verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And it teaches us something. It teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. God's grace which saves us also instructs us how to live righteously. That means to live correctly. And how to live soberly. It means with the right mindset. 
In other words, how to live differently than what our normal inclinations are. God's grace teaches us how to do that. So what does living righteously look like? What does having the right mindset look like? Well, there are as a negative approach towards it and a positive approach. Two negatives and two positives, all right? The negative came first, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. That's how we live godly and soberly and righteously in this present world, okay? We have to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. To deny means to reject or refuse something that is offered to you. So what does it mean to reject ungodliness? Well, ungodliness is a lack of a reverence toward God. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord reverencing God is to hate evil. So ungodliness is when someone doesn't love the things God loves and doesn't hate the things God hates, okay? That's ungodliness. So we're to deny that. We are to love the things God loves and hate the things he hates. We are not to love the things he hates and hate the things he loves, okay? We need to reject that idea of those who love the things that he hates and hates the things that he loves. Secondly, we need to reject worldly lusts. Worldly lusts, what is that? What is the desire for a perfect society without the Lord and his ways? It means the desires or the cravings that stem from this present corrupt age. There are desires and cravings and maybe even good things that this present age wants, they long for. But the problem with them is they want them without the Lord and they want them without the Lord's ways. We need to reject that. God's grace teaches us to reject loving things, behaviors, and ideas that God hates And it teaches us to reject a desire for a wonderful life apart from him and his ways, okay? That's what God's grace teaches us in the negative. That's how we can live the way God wants us to live. What do we do on the positive side? Looking for that blessed hope, number one, and then number two, and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to be looking for, have an expectation for. The word there, looking for, actually means an expectation of the fulfillment of a promise, a covenant. What promise? What covenant? When Jesus said, behold, I go away to prepare a place for you. If I go away to prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you to be where I am. That's his promise to us. That's what our blessed hope is. The word blessed hope means our happy expectation, our happy confidence, What is our happy confidence? Colossians 3, verse 4, that when Christ who is our life shall appear, we will appear in glory with him. My happy confidence is not just to hold on until Jesus comes. I'm here to going through the tribulation, getting killed left and right, because that is not the promise I'm looking forward to. My happy expectation is that I could be part of the generation that would be alive when Jesus comes back before that time comes the blessed hope of the church, that Jesus is going to take me not just out from the troubles here, but to be with him forever. Doesn't that sound like a happy expectation, to be with him forever? 1 Peter chapter 1.13 says the same exact thing. I'm just going to read it real quick to you because we're running out of time. But it says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober, similar to Titus, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a gift God has given to the church that he's gonna rescue us. He's gonna take us to be where he is. So that's one of the ways that we live godly, soberly, and righteously in this world is having our happy confidence in the return of Christ to take us to be with him. 
The second thing is also looking forward to or having an expectation for his kingdom, the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That phrase, glorious appearing, is a phrase used by the Greeks to describe when a God came to earth to rescue the Greeks. That's exactly what Jesus is going to do when he returns to defeat the Antichrist, rescue the world from destruction, and set up his kingdom. So God's grace teaches us to look for the rapture, and it teaches us to invest in his kingdom, to be looking forward to his kingdom, not building a kingdom here. And what is his kingdom? Getting a bride for him, making disciples. Now, the negative and the positive are intimately entwined. I can't reject ungodliness if I don't have a happy confidence that Jesus is coming back. I can't, I, can't, I won't. I won't invest my life into building Jesus' kingdom if I'm invested in the cravings of this present corrupt age. So both need to be apart. So why is it so important that we be looking for Jesus to come back? Because when we do, it's a part of how we stay on track as Christians. It's a part of how we live godly in this world. Look at 1 John 2 with me. And while I, I will not close with these verses, I will close with the thought that these verses teach us. 1 John 2, verse 28. And I'm going to read through verse 3. It says, And now, little children, abide in him. Stay faithful to him. Keep fidelity with him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that does righteousness is born of him. That's how we do it. So we live righteously, godly, and sober in this present corrupt age. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world doesn't recognize us. We're different because it didn't know him. It didn't recognize him. He was different. Beloved, now are we the sons of God? But we don't necessarily outwardly look like it just yet. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we do know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Externally, we don't have our new bodies yet, even though we're the children of God. We don't know exactly what we're going to look like, but we know we'll be like him. We'll get a new body like him. Verse 3, what do we do in the meantime? And every man that has this hope in him, that he is coming back, that we are going to be changed, that the rapture is going to occur, every man that has this hope in him has that happy expectation in him. What do you do? Purify yourself. He purifies himself even as Jesus is pure. Watching expectantly for the return of Christ is one of the ways I stay on track as a Christian. It keeps me morally clean. That's what pure means. It's the same thing that Paul says at the end of when he teaches on the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15. At the end in verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord, right? Therefore, why? Because, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed at the blowing of the trumpet and the twinkling of an eye. We're going to be with the Lord. And so it's in light of that that we are steadfast, immovable, always abounding in his work. If I'm not looking for the Lord's return and I say like a wicked servant, my Lord delays his coming, then what am I going to do? I'm going to beat the men's servants and the maid servants. I'm going to live in drunkenness and rioting and doing all sorts of things that God doesn't want me to do because I'm not focused on the fact that he's coming back for me. Having a happy expectation of the Lord's return makes us faithful servants, 
helps us to finish the work that God gave us to do until he returns. Don't you want that? Two of you do. I do. When I get off track, when I get all flustered and angry and I start treating people the way I shouldn't, it's because I've forgotten that Jesus could come back right now while I'm being rude to this person or I'm taking out my frustrations on this person. Right now he could come back. It's when I lose sight of that. At the end of his teaching on the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, he says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words, with the teaching of the rapture. Having a happy expectation of the Lord's return to rescue us from the coming wrath is what makes us comforting and compassionate people. Don't you want that? Listen, in a culture that seeks to offer false notions of comfort and acceptance and love, how important is it that we're reflecting the true comfort that can be had when you repent of your sins and you become God's child? Don't you want to have that impact? Guys, the world is frightened, angry, and it is desperately trying to prevent all of their worst fears from coming true. It sees the inferno coming down the lane. It knows that it's going to go up in smoke. And so it is desperately, angrily, in, in fear, trying to prevent all of those things from happening. Because if this world is all there is, then that's what you do, right? But we're supposed to be different, aren't we? We have the blessed hope that Jesus come, is come, going to come and he's going to rescue us from this inferno before it gets to that point. And when you see someone out there who's desperately trying to hold on to everything because they don't have that hope, isn't our job to be compassionate upon what's coming for them if they don't receive the Lord and to have a heart that wants to share Christ with them so they can receive the Lord? Isn't that our job? Isn't that who the church is supposed to be? If we are frightened, angry, and angry, and desperately trying to prevent all of our worst fears to come true, and that's where our focus is at, we have missed the plot. Biblical teaching on the rapture is at an all-time low right now in the church. Is it any wonder that ungodliness and worldliness seems like they're an all-time high in the church? Is it possible that we need to return to our blessed hope so that we can reject those notions and get back to making disciples? Listen, I'm far past out of time. But read 2 Corinthians chapter 4 today on your own time. The whole chapter. Trust me, it'll be good. At the very start of the chapter, though, Paul says this. But we have this ministry. What ministry? Making disciples, bringing people to Christ, teaching them to bring other people to Christ. We have this ministry. And he goes, and we're not like others out there who are deceiving and, and manipulating and trying to get people to do what we want them to do to build our own kingdoms. He says, we have this treasure, this amazing treasure. God has commanded his light to shine out of the darkness into our hearts that the light of the glorious gospel might shine to those who are perishing. We have this treasure in earthly vessels. We're not perfect vessels, but he's put this treasure inside of us. And so he says, you know what? We're distressed. We are perplexed. We are pushed in on every side. We are knocked down. But we are not destroyed. And so he says, if our lives are being killed so that you can find life, you can become part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and you'll go in the rapture, he goes, 
mission accomplished. He says, for this light affliction can't be compared to a far more eternal weight of glory that shall be revealed in us. Listen, (laughs) if 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is not a description of your Christianity right now, it means you need to get back on track. If that's not a description of your Christianity right now, it means you need to get back on track. Now, if you read that and you go, well, that is a description of my Christianity right now, then Jesus's exhortation to the church of Philadelphia applies to you. Hold fast what you have. Let no man take your crown. Finish your race. Finish your race. Finish strong. Because Jesus is coming soon. Let's all stand. What a day that will be, Lord. When the trumpet sounds, and you say, come up here, and we'll be reunited with, you know, those, our loved ones, Lord, who have already gone home to be with you. We'll be in our new bodies that will never be tempted to sin, never desire wrong, never get old, never feel pain, never experience that death we experience every day. And more importantly, we'll see you. We'll see your face. See your smile. We'll see the wounds. And we'll learn of your grace for all eternity. We'll receive crowns, crowns that we'll say we don't deserve. We'll feast with you for seven years. And then we'll return to reign with you. Lord, with John we say, even so, come quickly for what a day that will be. And as you tarry, Lord, we commit now to being faithful brides. Lord, to know that you're being faithful to your part, preparing a place for us. That we might be presented to you as a chaste virgin, Lord. Not as those who have gone after other lovers, other pursuits in life, but rather in all the places that you lead us in our careers, our jobs, our families, our cities, that we would be those lights that you've commanded to shine out in the darkness, into our hearts, faithful transmitters of your treasure. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.